Hello, and welcome to the Space Solutions podcast. I am your host and marketing executive at Space Solutions, Sophie Scott. Our podcast explores what makes the ideal workplace through our special guests and case studies. Environmental responsibility continues to be at the top of the agenda for businesses as we seek to combat climate change. But how do we design a sustainable workplace? At Space, we take a holistic approach to workplace design so that businesses can get closer to reaching net zero commitments through a future-proof work environment. For our third episode, Phil Muir, Group Director of Consultancy and Design at Space, will be leading a roundtable discussion with our colleague, David Crow, Head of Architecture and Major Projects, and Rob Cargill, who is partner at Troop, Bywaters and Anders Engineering Partnership. In this episode, the discussion touches upon one of our case study projects, 4 to 5 Lockside Avenue. Space was involved in the refurbishment of this pre-existing office space, providing architectural and design services to refresh a tired and inefficient space based in Edinburgh Park. As well as improving the building's energy efficiency resources, we created a space that was fossil fuel free with zero direct emissions and aligned to net zero targets. If you'd like to find out more about this case study at the end of the episode, head to the project section on our website, which is spacesolutions.co.uk and look out for 4 to 5 Lockside Avenue. Welcome to the latest of our 2023 podcasts. I'm Phil Muir, Group Director of Consultancy and Design at Space. I'm joined here today by my colleague, David Crow. Hi, everyone. And also Rob Cargill, who is a partner at Troop by Waters and Anders Engineering Partnership. Hello, everyone. So today's theme is sustainable refurbishment, an increasingly important topic given the carbon burden created by construction and the need for action moving towards the government net zero carbon targets. The Architects Journal launched their Retro First campaign in 2019, quoting many particulars such as the UK construction industry produces 35 to 40% of the UK's total carbon emissions, and that according to the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, of the 200 million tonnes of waste generated in Britain annually, 63% of that is construction debris. We lose more than 50,000 buildings through demolition every year, and and while more than 90% of the resulting waste material is recovered, much of this is recycled into a much less valuable product or material rather than being reused. So some some jarring numbers there. Uh, Simon Alford, the RIBA president, was quoted as saying, it's essential that we think reuse first new build second. Now, there are terms like retrofit and sustainable refurbishment and common use. What's your understanding of this, Rob? Yes, Phil, those are some stark numbers you've quoted. Um, Something else that is often quoted in this context is that 80% of the buildings we will need in 2050 already exist. This reminds us uh, that when we look at how we transition to a lower carbon economy, A significant contribution can be made by repurposing what we have already, rather than just focusing on how we make new buildings more energy efficient. Certainly, as an M&E consultant uh, working in the industry um, over my career, it's been interesting to see the shift in focus, whereas for most of my career, the emphasis has been on reducing operational energy use and thereby operational carbon, we now see that to truly understand the overall impact of our buildings, 
we have to take on board the embodied carbon of everything involved in the in the construction of the asset. Another way of looking at this challenge is to really focus on the carbon of now and not just the carbon of the future. The carbon of now is the embodied carbon, the carbon ex expended in creating the building we hand over. We can reduce that by reusing as much of our existing building stock as possible. So, so on that, you know, so demolition is becoming increasingly more controversial, I think, over upgrading an existing building. Take it, you would agree with that? I think increasingly there's a lot of jargon appearing um, and you, you touched on um, retrofit and sustainable refurbishment. And, and there's probably some fine distinctions here and different people might tell you different things, but it's maybe worth touching on on how you might draw draw lines between some of these terms. I think a refurbishment is essentially repair and maintenance. So for example, you might repaint your windows, replace broken hinges or damaged seals or broken glass, but there isn't any big change to the elements of the building or its systems. And that may not be much, but it is sustainable to the degree that you are conserving the carbon embodied or built into the existing building fabric, so you're not creating unnecessary waste. Whereas retrofitting, I think, would be more replacing the existing windows with new, higher performing ones, accepting the loss of carbon built into the old windows on the basis that the new windows will save more carbon over their own life cycle. And obviously, this principle can be applied across almost any element of a building fabric or system. I think my understanding would be that a retrofit, you know, would include measures to improve the environmental performance of the building. Yeah, yeah. You but know, I think the reality is that both of these terms cover a spectrum of work with a core idea that you move away from the notion of wholesale replacement for the sake of it and be much more considered about what to replace and what to retain. Yes, Phil, picking up on your point about demolition sometimes being controversial. There have been some quite high profile cases that have been in, in, in the media, in the construction press, uh, and even at national press level. Um, and we are seeing the argument being made for whole life carbon assessment to be introduced into the planning process. This approach would mean that a full assessment of the total impact on carbon emissions is undertaken in order to judge if demolition and new a new build would in fact create more carbon emissions than retaining and refurbishing an existing asset. You know, I, I think inevitably the the view of what happens when buildings get demolished depends on the building and its location and what its, its loss would mean to people. But complete demolition is a very public symbol of waste and loss, even if there may be rational reasons for it. Overall, I think the outcry over demolishing buildings is probably a good thing overall, as it has helped focus attention on looking intelligently at what might be usefully repurposed rather than simply starting again. But we need, do need to bear in mind there will always be some instances where retention just doesn't make any sort of sense. The cost associated with retrofitting existing buildings must be very onerous. As consultants, how do you approach this issue with your clients to ensure that they get the most bang for buck in their projects? From at least an architectural perspective, there are some relatively straightforward calculations that can be made. 
for instance, and returning to my analogy about windows, replacing windows with higher performance glazing might cost X pounds and save you Y pounds in energy costs across a given investment cycle, depending, of course, on energy costs. And there will be X kilograms in embodied carbon added by new windows, but hopefully offset by Y kilograms of carbon saved due to higher energy efficiency over the life cycle of those new windows. So that's a, a relatively straightforward, almost mathematical exercise that you can do. But the outcome isn't always obvious and needs to be looked at across the whole project. For instance, going from double to triple glazing improves energy efficiency, but won't necessarily make sense commercially and may not even make sense in terms of balancing the carbon needed to dispose of the existing windows and then make, transport and install the new windows versus the carbon saved by higher energy efficiency. Um, and I'm anticipating there'll be similar calculations that can be done from a building services perspective, Rob. Yes, David, what you've described there can also be referred to as climate-based optioneering, and, and that is an approach to tackle this challenge. This is the use of in-depth analysis to show the impact on embodied carbon emissions of different decisions. This can present the analysis of different options in whole life assessment terms, allowing comparison of total predicted carbon emissions. Capital cost and costs in use can then be added and layered over that analysis, allowing cost per tonne of carbon saved to be a metric used for assisting decision-making. And, and it doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing approach because there are some intermediate solutions like remanufacturing, where, for example, light-fitting shells and some of their components are retained, uh, but other elements are replaced to greatly improve the efficiency whilst also minimising the impact on embodied carbon and reducing the amount of waste produced. There's a lot there to consider, both from a landlord's perspective and also uh, an occupier's perspective. Uh, occupiers are increasingly looking at ESG considerations when choosing their, their space. From a fit-out perspective, we're seeing a lot of products coming to market with this sustainable credentials, but we've learned that we need to be careful with that. One example being uh, a sustainable project that we would need have, needed to have sourced from across the pond. So that was quickly uh, discounted. From the basic fit-out elements perspective, options are few and far between. We've been recently looking at a plasterboard alternative made with recycled materials and also bricks made from recycled materials also. Any thoughts more from uh, from the from the occupier perspective, uh, Rob, David? Uh, well, inevitably, occupiers will have different priorities. ESG is definitely an increasing priority, especially across larger corporate organisations in the public sector. Banks are also starting to drive change directly via landlords rather than in the opposite direction. Uh, there's been commentary that development funding is increasingly dependent on sustainable credentials, as that ensures that the development maximises its attractiveness to occupiers right now and can stay viable in the future, um, as obviously the, uh, the funding's at risk if the building can attract occupiers. And yes, certainly from, from our experience in working with major occupiers, ESG is, is coming to the forefront of the decision-making process when considering your corporate real estate options. Often it's considered a move from older, poor performing buildings. Is Yes, it's certainly our experience that ESG is at the forefront of many corporate occupiers' decision-making when looking at 
relocation or refurbishment options. A move from older, poorer performing buildings to newer, low carbon buildings can significantly reduce scope one and scope two emissions associated with a, a company's real estate requirements. But equally, a deep retrofit of existing space in collaboration with the landlord can lead to equal or better outcomes when embodied carbon is taken into account. Our advice is for corporate occupiers to look at the options of working with existing landlords first before necessarily assuming a wholesale move is the lowest carbon option. And I, th- I think uh, whilst we're talking about occupiers and their priorities, we can't lose sight of some of the more traditional considerations. And it's maybe less tangible and more difficult to put a value or a cost in carbon against it. But but ultimately, buildings do need to be occupied. That's obvious from a commercial perspective. But if they're sitting empty, that's also not great from a sustainability perspective. Commercial buildings need to be attractive to users and users' needs do change over the time. So if you're looking at older buildings, the needs of users may be quite different to uh, what they were when the building was built. Uh, using the example of 4 or 5 Lockside Avenue, the original building cores were inflexible and didn't really support multiple tenants or even efficient use of the floor plates. Reconfiguring the cores was the right thing to do, but it would be hard to quantify the benefit in any sort of carbon calculation. We were fortunate to have an experienced client who understood the trade-offs and was prepared to invest in getting the building future-proofed as far as commercially possible. Um, but that's more of a, obviously and intangible compared to the straightforward calculations of embodied carbon and energy in use. I'm sure every project will have its own particular opportunities for sustainable upgrades. Uh, David, you mentioned four or five lockside. The agent condition of that building being, you know, relatively young and relatively good condition allowed you to retain certain elements and make pragmatic improvements, but with so many historic buildings within the built environment, are there any examples of how a, how a much older building has been retrofitted successfully? Yes, um, Phil, um, an exemplar building that fits into the term deep retrofit and, uh, and provides benchmark in terms of sustainable outcomes would be the Entopia building which is the the building that um, houses the Cambridge Institute of Sustainable Leadership. That was a former telephone exchange of 1920s vintage that went on to be used as um, office accommodation and then converted to be the the CISL's HQ. And and, and certainly there are um, case studies there that that explain that. Bringing things closer to home, um, in, in terms of in the Scottish context, if we look up and down Bothwell Street in Glasgow at the moment, we're seeing the examples of um, retrofit and deep retrofit of existing buildings to rather than demolition. 150 Bothwell Street is on site as we speak. Uh, and again, that's a heritage facade being retained uh, as, as, as well as the structure behind that and the repurposing of that building. Aurora and also then the Eagle building that became Onyx are also examples on Bothwell Street itself where refurbishment of existing stock 
is chosen over demolition. Looking across to the East Coast, great example of a heritage building that's been repurposed in, in a dramatic fashion in this case is the Fraser's building in the West End, repurposed for the Johnny Walker experience. Again, taking an existing heritage asset, developing it in an imaginative way in the context of, of its location and also its aspiration uh, to be a tourist um, destination as well. So they would be examples that I would I would quote in terms of um, what we're seeing in terms of um, imaginative repurposing of existing buildings um, on, on, in the agenda of um, reuse uh, rather than demolition. So those examples re- really bring the issue to life, Rob, thanks. Uh, and it, it just shows that, you know, there's a lot of momentum here and shows what can be achieved with a willing client and a determined consultant team. Sustainable refurbishment, it's a very wide topic. We've only scratched the surface here, but within the world of construction, the direction towards sustainable refurbishment is clear. Any final thoughts on the subject, David and Rob? I I think inevitably it's going to be a changing picture with developing priorities. For instance, up until COVID, office buildings had fairly predictable and consistent patterns of occupation across the working week. The rapid move since then to hybrid working has upended those patterns where buildings can have one widely varying levels of occupation from one day to the next. The buildings likely were not designed to be able to, for instance, shut down whole floors on an ad hoc basis when they're not needed. So uh, sustainable refurbishment retrofit projects now really need to factor in that flexibility over and above other considerations of general energy efficiency, as the ability to partially shut down buildings could be a massive part of potential energy savings, depending obviously on the way occupiers need to use their buildings. So we definitely need to be alive to the fact that it's going to be an evolving picture. But ultimately, it's being careful with Mm. the energy embodied in a building that's going to be really important. I recently read that there are now around two and a half billion solar panels in the world, but little capacity to properly recycle the rarer elements in the glass, such as copper and silver. The world is running out of available silver. And meanwhile, most of the glass from redundant solar panels ends up as low-grade material used in sandblasting or even in asphalt mixtures. More recycling capability is being built, but it's a reminder that we can't just rely on recycling to solve our problems and we need to reuse what we can. My final thoughts for today's podcast were to quote the strap line from the Architects Journal Retro First um, campaign. That strap line being the most sustainable building is, is the one that already exists. This helps to explain why the refurbishment and deep retrofit of existing buildings is such an important part of the journey to a net zero future. Thanks for listening everyone. Thank you very much to David and Rob for their expert input. I hope you found the discussion interesting. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we've discussed in this episode or find out more about the services we offer, you can get in touch with inquiries at spacesolutions.co.uk. You can also find more of our live case studies on our YouTube channel at Create Great Space or check out what we're up to via our LinkedIn page, Space. Or lastly, our Instagram page, which is again, at Create Great Space.